You know the drill. This is it. We're here. Welcome to And Another Thing, the podcast. What's up, girl? Just uh, chilling. How you feel about your adopted city's team winning the championship? Wait, I mean, well, I guess y'all got two teams. So are you Clippers or, or Lakers? I'm Lakers all day, all night. I've been a big LeBron fan forever. So to see him come and do what he said he was going to do, and, like, I want to say shut the haters up, but, you know, the sad part is that you can never shut the haters up because he said he was going to win the chip. He won the chip, and they're like, oh, it don't count. Oh, all the teams wasn't in. Oh, well, he should have won it in four instead of six. And you're like – Y'all going to find something to complain about now. Yeah, I, I have a confession. So, like, I'm not a LeBron hater, but I wasn't, like, a LeBron is king, I don't know, fangirl. Like, I respect, like, he is the greatest basketball player to play the game today in this era. But, like, seeing the way that other people hate on him made me cape for him, right? I'm like, wait, I'm not trying to that be bad. Here. Right, right. Like, I'm not trying to be out here like Skip Bayless. Like, he, he is, like, off the chain, like such a hater i'm like what does this man have to do <laughs> to prove to you that he's he's great like like why is your your expectation the the measuring stick like who gave you that power cool you love mj and like mj did it six times back to back but you forgot he played nine other seasons and didn't win not nan none of nothing and y'all don't talk about that so they were like at least give him his props because he did what four and four and eight four and nine like whatever Whatever LeBron's numbers are, like, it's like, it's equivalent to Mike, essentially. Yeah, it's ridiculous. So they deserve to win. I know being in that bubble had to be <laughs> crazy. I know they're just ready to go home. Yeah, but what's really dope is I read um, three months, a hundred and something games. It's like 105. No, uh, no positive COVID test the entire time. I thought that was really impressive. Yeah, the bubbles worked. I mean, it worked for... NBA, WNBA, NHL. Um, but I mean, I feel like, <laughs> and that's a great thing. I think their commissioners and the league and all the players, they did the right thing. And um, I think it's, you know, it's different. It's apples and oranges when people try to compare it to the NFL. Like, why won't the NFL get in a bubble? And it's like, you can't do it in the way that those leagues did it. It's just not, I just don't think it's feasible. Like, everybody is just thinking that it is. Yeah. Um, it's, they forget how many people. And I'm like, 51 plus your coaching staff. So, what, let's say 90 people times 32. There is no place. You would have to create a bubble that extended, you know, like five or six states to be able to house that many people, have enough arenas to be able to play the games and circulate. And it just – it would be insane. It's just right. too much. All that equipment, like it's a lot. So they they'll push through. I know they have we have some issues going on now, but crossing fingers that they get to finish the season safely. Yeah. Fingers crossed. Shout out to my Rams, you know. Even though I'm not with them, they've actually been playing pretty well. So that's good to see. At least I'm not a jinx because I thought, you know, like maybe I leave and they just start losing, you know. I was like, I can't say I was a good luck charm anymore because they Still doing their thing. So kudos. Shout out to them. But they went to the Super Bowl when you were there. So until they do that again, maybe you were the good luck charm. <laughs> you, you're right about that. That was my first season, too. I came in sprinkling lots of, you know, newness. Well, shoot, maybe I'm the bad luck charm for my team. Well, <laughs> no, you're not the bad luck charm. They're, you guys are going this year. You guys look good. You guys are solid. 
we shall see it's a long season mm-hmm. we shall see um <laughs> said like a true nfl professional it's a long season i don't make any guarantees i don't talk i don't talk trash we we will see you know what i'm grateful for right now i am grateful for twitter and black twitter let me tell you how first of all before quarantine i was hearing about how advanced twitter was and how like things just pop on twitter i had no idea it's popping on twitter i have been seeing things it's a game changer it hits twitter at 10 a.m and it's on instagram at 10 p.m i'm like oh, i already saw this and like the tweet already <laughs> that's because instagram people just uh, screenshot the tweet <laughs> and they repost right. it and then by um, the time it hits your al- algorithm, it's like two days later. I'm like, been there, done that, saw it. Yeah, I love Twitter. Um, I don't love it so much, you know, in election seasons, but I think Twitter is like a- amazing for when you're watching things live. So even the debates, to be honest with you, but watching sports live, watching award show live, the amount of like memes that come out of it, the amount of just like hilarious content that comes from it it's just listen you can't compare it when they created that fly account i was no good i was like you know what twitter i'm out of here i'm done i'm done i do want to say shout out to my my twitter peeps because i posted i guess it was like last week and i was like there has to be an easier way to cook bacon (laughs) and mad people hit me and like they they were like whispers in the oven and i'm like what are they talking about so this morning i was like you know what let me just give this oven thing a whirl Put some paper down. Well, not paper, but aluminum foil. <laughs> I hope you're not putting paper in. No, it wasn't paper, but I put the aluminum foil down. My bacon was done in 10 minutes. It was perfect. I didn't get popped. It was... I, <laughs> shout out to Twitter, man. I had no idea. My dad still cooks it on his griddle. So you was dropping it in the pan and running away from the, from the popping grease. <laughs> and that, and I get, get over to it, and I'm like... Ah, you got to develop some uh, some tough skin. The more amount of grease that pops on your arm, the better you are for it. And then you won't feel it after a while. Okay, that worked for your mother and your grandmother and your grandmother's grandmother. That don't work for me. I feel like they used to put their hands in the popping grease. Like nothing, I don't feel like it bothered them that much. <laughs> I never saw my mom ever flinch frying anything, even like frying chicken. And you would hear it. It would be like, sizzle crackle pop and i'm like do, are there is that oil popping up out the pan and you're just like putting your hand i don't understand it absolutely they were, got it they were so so speaking of bacon <laughs> talking about breakfast what are your other do you have any morning routines like do you get up and cook every day or is that like a weekend thing or like what's your what's your morning routine that's a good question i think it's changed now that we're like i'm getting into a really good rhythm so i I wake up, you guys know I meditate. That's like, a, that's my thing. Um, I have to, I either do a smoothie or I'll cook something. I'll light my little intention candle and like get my day started. That's what I try to do. Yeah, I feel like I was in a better routine probably like early to mid pandemic. Mm-hmm. Um, like I was very just intentional about waking up and making sure I ate breakfast and making sure I just took my time. And now I feel like I'm just, running amok like I'm back to it's almost not back to normal but like I'm kind of just rushing and I don't know where I'm rushing to or what I'm rushing to do but I just got out of the habit of the routine and I need to get back to it like I need to just you know take my time set my attentions for the day and just be have a little bit of peace so it's not like just waking up and you just go 
So. Yeah, that's imp- that's important because I found when I on the days when I didn't do that, I wasn't as productive. So I've tried to be really intentional. Where I've gotten to a frenzy is my evenings, because initially I was like, well, after like month three, I was having a really t- hard time going to sleep. So instead of watching TV in my room, I would always read, and I was like killing it. Like I was like knocking through books like left and right, ordering like they're coming in. I'm reading them. I'm like knocking them out and like a week and a half, two weeks. I haven't read a book in, not consistently. I'll pick it up and I'll get like 30, 40 pages in and be like, yo, I need to get back on this tomorrow. Girl. Yeah, I want to be more consistent. I'm not good at reading books. Not that I can't read, but I'm not good at- No judgment. We all have weaknesses, D. That's what I I admit that, like I just don't finish them. I have probably like three books that I need to finish. I need to set my attention to finish my books. Mm, okay. And your candle. Okay. That too. So anyway, going back to what we first started talking about, you know, the whole Twitter and black Twitter and influence. Um, mm-hmm. We do have a, a guest today. Again, we always have a guest. So I feel like me saying we have a special guest. <laughs> right. <laughs> redundant. But we'd be surprising ourselves with our guests. That's what it is. Like, right. Exactly. Uh, but he is pretty special. Um, so we'll go ahead and, and welcome him in the room and just get started with today's discussion. I love it. Let's do it. Joining us on And Another Thing, the podcast is a man that truly needs no introduction. He is influential culture icon, Detavio Samuels, chief operating officer of Revolt TV and Media. And and please let me know if I say that title wrong, because I know that you have some, you you got promoted right after you started. So um, welcome to him. Flax on him. Right. Welcome to And Another Thing, the podcast. We're so happy to have you. Thank you. So look, I think you may be the first people to ever introduce me as being a cultural icon. So you know you only needed people to say it twice. So hopefully some point in time, and then I'm going to claim it for real. You absolutely (laughs) should. You absolutely should. I appreciate it. That's so sweet. Thank you for that. So I actually, I actually had, um, I actually started following you a, a while back. So like, okay. um, I was receiving your weekly emails, maximum potential back in 2012. What? Yeah. So, so I'm, that's I'm insane. Familiar. Like no one knows that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm super familiar with what you've been doing. Um, and I've been watching your work with like global hue. Um, and actually, so I, I think, so I, you did some work with Tony Rome before, right? With Code Black. Still do. Yeah. yeah so I, I did some of his pitch decks for that. So Copy. I saw your name on a couple of email chains. So Copy. this is like a full circle moment for. Yo, for- it's so bananas for me. So that that um, blog for me, Maximum Potential was good. Mm-hmm. Um, it's actually the thing that gave me my book, right? I leveraged much of the content that I wrote there, found the post with the most interaction and then turned that into the book. But there was, it wasn't like I was getting tons of responses or tons of comments every week. And so what would happen, I'm going to connect this, I promise. So what would happen is once a month or every other month, someone who I didn't know was reading it would send me this like beautiful email like thank you so much for so I learned and the the quote I used to tell myself is I write for the ghost I don't know who's reading I don't know who's consuming and I don't need to see the numbers but I know that if I just keep doing it the work will be impactful because every now and then somebody tells me that it mattered you know what I mean so this is super full circle because it's like I'm meeting a ghost from like a decade ago (laughs) (laughs) which is dope that's so cool Yep, I'm one of those ghosts. So <laughs> thank you for it. Thank it's you for an your honor work. to meet you, Queen. Yeah, that's dope. Honor to meet you too. 
Super dope. So more flowers, lots, lots of flowers. And, you know, I'm definitely here to give some. And literally the first person I thought of when we were talking about this podcast was Datavio. So I am so grateful that you answered my email, <laughs> that you corrected me <laughs> in the process, um, and that we finally have a chance to catch up. And so I have literally known Datavio since I was like getting started in marketing. Um, I will say that we worked together when I was at TV One. Yeah. And even then he was humble. He was down to earth. He always made time to provide insight and advice. I'm like, hey, I'm gonna be in, in New York. Can I get five minutes? He's like, yes, absolutely. And so I've always um, really appreciated that. And what I really loved was having the opportunity to be a part of anything that he was working on or just be in the environment where I could just overhear a conversation and not in like a super creepy way, but just really just to get that insight. And I mean, you were always just anticipating the next thing. You were always looking ahead. You were in corporate America and you, I never saw you wear a dress suit. And that was just like blew my mind. You just did it in your own way. And you were always very passionate about the culture. You taught me that there is a lane for multicultural marketing. And I was just like, I love this. This is what I want to do. And so I was like, we need to talk to him. I need to tell him that he has inspired me and I, I am watching, you know, in the background. Um, so thank you. And, and thank you for, for joining us. Yeah, what I'll say about you is um, the reason I quote unquote corrected you in the email <laughs> is because all of those things that you said were true. You were hungry, you were passionate, you were trying to figure things out. And so for the world to know, she writes me this 500 sentence email <laughs> inviting me to speak on the podcast and then tells me who the email is from at the very end. And my whole point was all I needed to do was see your name and I would have showed up for you and said yes, but you made me read 500 words to get to it. <laughs> Your name Listen, the brand was enough. It's all love. I, I love it. And I will tell you that, um, and we haven't talked about this, but your name also holds weight in the streets as well. So I had just joined with the Los Angeles Rams and my COO at the time was like, wait, you know, Detavio Samuels, how do you know him? What did you guys do? What were you like, what were you working on? And, you know, I just shared that we worked together. It was like my previous job. That's where I was coming from. From then on, Detavio, any idea, campaign, anything that I was suggesting, he's like, go, you're good. Keep going. I'm like, shout out to Detavio because he's making my life so much easier. It was uh, Jamie Regal, by the way. I'm not sure oh, if, you, yeah, if you remember Jamie. But. Yeah, of course, of course, of course. Wow, what a small world. Um, so I'm going to, I'm not really good at receiving flowers, but I'm going to in this moment because it has been a long, fulfilling week, but a long week. And I literally just got off of another panel and so my energy is drained. And so thank you Queens for putting energy back into my tank. You cannot pour from an empty cup and I feel refreshed and rejuvenated um, and excited. So thank you for that. You're most of welcome. course, most of course, welcome. Of course. So, so we'll jump right into a few questions. Um, okay. Okay, so the first one. So you saw the need for telling, you know, the stories of Black culture very, very early on. So before multicultural marketing was even as big as it is now, um, you know, I remember seeing your name associated with Walmart, right? Um, so how did that influence your career journey from Global Hue to now Revolt? And what did that journey look like for you? Yeah, so it's a little, I can't actually claim, I could, but it would be disingenuous to say like, 
oh, I saw multicultural and was like, I need to jump into it. The way I would actually say it is um, I saw advertising and wanted to jump into it. So second semester senior year, I take this marketing course and fall in love with this idea of marketing. Um, I start watching the television and start kind of analyzing the commercials and decide in that moment that I want to do advertising. Well, I'm a little bit older than you guys. And so the job offers I was getting were like for $19,000 in New York, right? And I was like, there's no way you can send money home, live the life you want to live and do all of that. So I ended up not going into advertising. Fast forward after business school, I'm doing the marketing job. It's global and it's dope, but it's not really what I want to do. The advertising folks are coming in and they're bringing all these cool ideas and then I'm filtering them down. And at that moment, again, I'm like, I have to get into advertising. I don't want to be the filter. I want to be the idea generator. I want to be the strategic thinker, all of those things. And so the people who gave me the door, um, so many times in advertising, they want you to start at the very bottom and make your way to the top. The folks who did not make me do that was Don Coleman and Global Hue. Um, Alan Pugh, Rob Chavis, Sybil Chavis saw my potential and put me right where I needed to be. And they just happened to be at a multicultural advertising agency. And so in 2007 is my first step into that world. And it was the most amazing world I'd ever seen. At Johnson & Johnson, the average person I was working with was 45 years old and white and cool and dope. Um, but I'm dressed in different, right? All of that. Now I'm at Global Hue, average person around me, 26, 27, felt like a real life boomerang. Global Hue had um, Latinx, Black and Asian. So it was like, you'd walk on the Black side and it was Biggie and Pac. You'd go to the Hispanic side or the Latinx side. They were doing salsa and like enjoying life. And um, you just got to see all of the culture and young people working together to really do super dope, amazing things. And I think that's what kind of set me on fire for multicultural. Um, I will say, and again, the need for our story to be told and told by people who have our lens and our perspective. Um, I will say that over time, I've always been like, I'm going to jump out of multicultural. Multicultural is an extremely hard game. It's under-resourced. Brands front like they care, and so many of them don't. And so I've always been like, when I left Global Hero, I was like, I'm never doing multicultural again. Boom, here I am at Urban One. When I left Urban One, I was like, when I leave this place, I'm probably never going to do multicultural again. Boom, here I am at Revolt. And so even though I don't know if I'm a glutton for punishment or pain, but it's kind of like the notion of HBCUs and PWIs. You realize that both matter. You need Black teachers at PWIs teaching white students and Black students about our culture. And you need Black folks at HBCUs looking to move the needle with our folks. Um, my career has been rooted on the HBCU side. I love working for my people. Um, to your point, like uh, haven't worn a suit in a long time, show up in sneakers, t-shirt, tatted up. Essentially, I get to sell the thing that I love. And so um, I don't know what I'll say or pretend that I'm going to do on the next journey. I'll probably say I'll be done with multicultural and be right back because I can't get enough. What could possibly be next from, you know, CEO of, of Revolt? I mean, I guess we'll, we'll stay yeah. tuned. We'll, we'll keep following you to find that out. Yeah, I don't think you have to know. Like at this point in time in my age, I'm just convinced that the furthest line of sight you can even pretend to have is like 18 months. Mm. Um, and I'm also super focused on like what I've realized about my own career is that um, your only job is to follow the breadcrumbs. And so if I don't see breadcrumbs, then I assume I'm supposed to be exactly where I am. And that when the time comes for God to give me new breadcrumbs, my only job is to make sure that I'm not so locked in that I am blind, but, it's, but to look for those breadcrumbs and whenever they come, they will absolutely point me in the right direction. Had no desire to come to Revolt. In fact, when they called me, I said, absolutely not. But again, God gave me enough breadcrumbs along the way to say, this is where you need to be. 
That's awesome. I think you should start that maximum potential newsletter all over again. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Please or do. Nuggets, See, this is why stuff. I wanted to have this conversation because the jewels, I mean, like, I don't even know where you go from there because there was just so much in it. I want to ask a little bit about your time with Urban One. Mm-hmm. And there was, um, at one point, I believe you guys acquired Global Grind, right? Mm-hmm. How did that all come about, as well as some of the other brands? There was like this idea and there's, you found this white space in the digital realm of like marketing and advertising towards the, to the African-American audience. And there's all these different platforms. So you brought them all together. What was that like? And then um, what was it like approaching Russell Simmons? Like, hey, you created something really great, but I have, you know, an opportunity to make it even better. Yeah, so my real truth about that one is they acquired Global Grind right before I took over. So I wasn't actually involved with that decision. It was a good decision. Um, I will say that over time, we definitely watched the brand. Like, it was so tied to Russell that once Russell kind of pulled back, the brand took a significant hit. Um, But what I am proud about is, to your point, we did acquire several other brands. We acquired Bossip, Madden Noir, Hip Hop Wired. So you take that, add Global Grind, and then you put it in with the rest of the stable. And we by far had the baddest portfolio in the digital game as it relates to Black. And the strategy was always kind of twofold, that... um, In media, it's a game of scale. Being the largest Black publisher with the most scale would garner us the most amount of money that essentially there had to be an 800-pound gorilla in the game, and we were going to be that. But then the other piece that I've always been really passionate about is what you find with Black companies is they get so passionate about speaking to Black people only. Um, And again, in a game of scale, that becomes very limiting, right? It means that the total market potential is always only going to be 50 million people, and you're competing against people who are going after 350 million people, right? And I've always felt like that was super short-sighted because we all know that Black culture drives U.S. culture, global culture. Mm -hmm. And so more important for me to have Black brands that are programmed from our DNA, hiring Black creators, talking about content from our perspective, but opening it up to the world. The way we talk about it at Revolt is, look, hip hop is a big party and the world is there, right? Hip hop is the number one music globally, but guess what? The DJ is always gonna be black, right? And so I've always felt like that was the strategy. And so I didn't wanna just own a portfolio of black centered brands. I wanted a portfolio that would allow us to do both to say we hit black women really hard with Madame Noir and Hello Beautiful, but we also hit the world with Global Grind, Bossip, what we later launched as Cassius. So anyways, that was the strategy. So were you the person behind the Bossip headlines? (laughs) Yeah, right. (laughs) Yeah, right. Man, that's such a good group of folks. I don't know that I've ever seen people who are more passionate and loving for their brand, they won't leave. Uh, like you just look at them and like, they love that brand. It is so much a part of their identity and they've, they've done such a good job with that brand. So no, I'm just the person <laughs> that gets to celebrate them and elevate them and laugh when they come through. And the one who knows who wrote them because they don't yeah. often tell you, <laughs> yeah. but I definitely can't take credit for that. They are the perfect example of alliteration. Like they should yes. always use their headlines when you're trying yes. to explain what alliteration is. <laughs> yes, a thousand percent, thousand percent. For sure. So I, I feel like with the work that you've been doing, um, you were essentially saying that, you know, Black Lives Matter. Um, and here's a research to back it up. Uh, why do you think that that phrase now being verbalized has become so divisive? Um, 
Hmm, why is it divisive? Um, because people don't understand what it means. So we are at a point in time in our country where we care more about hmm, planting a flag in our own way of thinking than we do about gaining understanding for others. You know, there's this like idea that you like, if you listen with empathy, it means you are listening to understand, not listening to rebut or refute, et cetera. And we are just not in the world where we want to understand or where we want to be empathetic. There really should be no question about Black Lives Matter. If you could do it again, you may make it say Black Lives Matter also, right? <laughs> right? Like, and there really should be no question about it, right? But now it's been politicized. It's, you know, got all this religious stuff around it. Like, I don't really understand all of those conversations. To me, it's super simple. Um, all Lives Matter is makes no sense if you just recognize that we're just saying Black Lives Matter too. And I don't understand why we all can't say yes to that. I don't understand why it has to get so political. Um, but again, I just think we've lost this willingness as humans to see yeah. each other as humans, to see each other as people, to be empathetic to one another, to understand. I can listen and understand without having to agree with everything you say. Um, but when we listen, like we get to shape our perspective and change our perspective and change the narrative. And we're just not in a country that's doing that right now. I totally agree. And I feel like um, in some regard, it feels like, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement has become commercialized in a sense. Like, um, I feel like some people are a little bit performative with it. Some people are authentic. Mm -hmm. But this year, I mean, I'm like, okay, <laughs> like, yeah. what, like, everyone's trying to take advantage of the moment. And, and sometimes I think they have good intentions, but it just comes off as very commercialized. So who do you think is doing it right? And who is capitalizing on the moment in the right way? And sure. who isn't? Maybe, maybe you don't have to, you know, call people out about who isn't. No, I call people out. I'm down <laughs> to call people out. I think they should be called out. Let's be clear. Um, I will call out the people who, most of them that I will call out are the people who support us and who support our work, because I think those people need deserve to be lifted up and celebrated. Um, so a couple of things. So why has Black Lives Matter become performative and cosmetic? Um, so the beauty of COVID, which there's not a lot, but the beauty of COVID is that it stopped the world and nobody could do anything. No sports, no restaurants, no bars, no anything. So now the world is all stuck, silent, and quiet. And then for eight minutes and 46 seconds, we watched George Floyd. And so when that happens, um, Black Lives, so, so my belief is that for brands, there are a couple of key values that are happening in America where there are no sidelines. Like they just, you are on, you are in the game, whether you say you're in the game or not. In that moment, Black Lives Matter is fully in the game. You are either on the left side or the right side, but you are in the game whether you say something or not. And so because of that, what ends up happening is Black Lives Matter is now more than just being Black, it's about being green. And we all know that green is the only thing that moves corporate America when you hit them in their pocketbooks and when you hit them in their P&Ls. And so that's what has all these people expressing and making all of these statements. But it is super critical that we um, scrutinize those people who are making those decisions or making those statements to make sure that it is not performative, but that it is real and that there is depth. And so the people who I know to have real depth to the work that they're doing, AT&T has been a phenomenal partner for us. Comcast just showed us and showed up and just gave us so much more distribution in a time when, um, again, we all know that um, MVPDs and cord cutting is happening. We've had brands like Nike who never bought Revolt one day in their life, probably bought us four times in Q3 just showing up, right? Um, Nike, Cash App, 
Walmart is in conversations with us now, Target, like these are new brands who are saying, we get the power of the moment and we're not just gonna say something, we're gonna do something. And so I celebrate them. The one brand that I will say, oh, McDonald's, my God, like I'm watching the work that they're doing. The CMO is a friend, um, the head of the brand is a friend. I think they're doing phenomenal work over there. And then the one brand that I'm gonna celebrate that we aren't doing a ton of work with, we're doing some, is Netflix. And so I love that move that they did to just bank black. Yeah. So many people, so so many people want to overthink things and overcomplicate things. I actually have a major fear that we've said we're going to give all of this money to Black Lives Matter and folks don't really know where the money should be going. Mm -hmm. And right. if they're going to give a bunch of money away and get no ROI, then people will pull back and the movement will shrink. And so I don't think you have to overthink it. I love what Netflix did, which was say, we're going to take our money from here put our money here and that one move, 2% of your money shifting to a black bank funds entrepreneurs, black ownership, all of those things in so many ways. And so why I celebrate Netflix is because they're the, one of the first ones to take a simple solution that you can't, I don't understand why every other Fortune 500 company hasn't done it. Mm -hmm. It is the easiest way to create impact and change. And so anyways, I celebrate them for finding a simple solution that matters. Yeah, I think that I think it's about being true in your lane. And I love um, and even kind of creating a new space. And I love what Rihanna has been able to do with Fenty, even in the beauty space of there. I think there was only like 15 or 20 shades of foundation. And she yeah. was able to come in and be like, no, we're going to offer 40 and then demonstrate the value of offering 40 and then not stopping there. So as you look at her ads, her runway show was just last week and just seeing the variety of shapes and sizes and colors that show up. I think that's how we do it. I think um, when we have the opportunity to also be that example in the brands that we're owning or that we're leading, um, you know, we can help to push that narrative forward. So um, I, I definitely agree. Yeah, um, I, lo I, I love the Rihanna example. I use it with brands all the time because what happens is now at the top of all these companies, you have majority white folks who are stuck in convention. And convention says you hire people who look like you, you cast people who look like you. And what I tell brands all the time is look at the people who have to move the needle globally, Rihanna, Beyonce, et cetera. Look at what they're doing. They are not starting in convention. They are starting on the edges and with people of color, which is what matters. And then guess what? The rest of the world comes. Follow people want to yeah. talk like total market. When people talk about total marketing, it's really just an efficiency play, right? They want to get the most efficient use of spin, which usually means we cancel all the black spend in general. But my argument is the most efficient spin is starting with black, is starting with the edges, because guess what? No matter what you do, white people already think that it's for them. You don't have to tell them, you don't have to invite them, they don't care if they see themselves because they see themselves everywhere. The most efficient way to, to move the needle is start with black folks, brown folks, create products for them, create advertising that features them. The white folks gonna show up anyway. We've proven that decades and decades and decades. I totally agree. So one thing that I've heard you talk about a number of times in other interviews is um, the concept of culture vultures. And I think uh, um, a lot of them are coming out of the, the woodworks, um, especially in this moment. Um, you know, we talked about capitalizing on the moment. So you said something and I'm, I'm not going to quote you know, verbatim, but it was basically start depositing in the culture, stop taking and stop taking away from it. So do you want to like expand on that? And like, how do we keep the culture vultures out? 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, look, essentially, we are living in a time when everyone is, um, the internet has given us access to everyone and everything. When I was young, I couldn't see what was going on in China. I couldn't see what was going on in India like I can. Now, because of the internet, I can see um, and grab all of that. And so people are swiping and stealing from wherever they, they can. I think that is a super dope thing. I think the key piece is if you are going to swipe, if you are going to borrow, then you got to get a couple of things right. You've got to make sure that you put people in the forefront from that space, from that community who can guide you and make sure that you get it right from the right perspective. You have to make sure that you take the economics and the math and the money that you make as it relates to whatever those ideas are and put them back into the communities in which you borrowed from. I think it's very possible to do it without being a culture vulture. You just have to do it in an intelligent way. And the wrong way to do it is to take your stuff, put my name on it and give you no credit, no shout out, no money and pretend it was yours. Yeah, I think TikTok is probably uh, <laughs> a good example of that. Like yeah. how we start so many trends on TikTok and, and we're not the ones making money from it. But Absolutely. You these people making $1.2 million. And it's off of dances that you stole from, you know, your peers and things that we made cool and the, lang- and the way that right. we talk and the things that we are interested in. And it's, it's just so weird. I, I wish people would just do exactly what you just said and pay them. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, me too. Yeah, and bring them on board to lead you um, in the direction that you're trying to go into. Me too. And somehow we also have to teach our people the art of monetization. Mm -hmm. And so I think what we do well, if you take a people from their home country, Africa, and you destroy everything about them and put them in a new country um, and on a new continent, what they do is recreate culture, right? And then you destroy that and you rip them from their families and then they have to recreate culture. culture. And so what we're really good at is recreating culture we've built that muscle Mm -hmm. really well but we have not figured out yet is how to monetize that culture at the same time that we are recreating it and so right now we're begging and asking people like don't just steal it you know like give me my credit which i think is right but i think we also have to find a way to teach black and brown folks the art of monetization and how when we create trends and when we create new things that we also have to think about how we can capitalize on them and monetize them as well I want to learn how to make a million dollars off of, yeah. <laughs> off of TikTok. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, as we talk about acceptance and inclusion, um, mm. you know, you have mentioned this concept of freeing the Black genius. And while mm. I'm not necessarily a genius, I think I've been able to, to glean a lot from that. And when I think about that phrase, I think about you. I think about Bazoma St. John. I think about mm. Joe Budden. Um, I think about Janelle Monet, those who are just coming into the space and doing it their own way authentically and, um, you know, sharing that with others and inspiring them to do the same. Um, how, do we, how do we do more of that so that it trickles down and it doesn't just live, um, you know, in the celebrity space, but it lives with um, the everyday, you know, minority? Yeah, I think the first one is just acknowledging that you're a genius period, right? So even like, you're not like, oh, I'm not necessarily, I think the first part is like being comfortable sitting in your genius. Um, Fresh ideas are really the combination of a whole bunch of old ideas with a fresh perspective. And as a black woman specifically, you can take any old idea and apply your perspective and it will be unique and different and genius. And so I think the first piece is just being comfortable acknowledging that that's what it is. It doesn't feel like genius. It doesn't sound like genius because it's just your normal way of thinking, but acknowledging that your way of thinking is not the way that the masses think is the first part. I you think the other piece- Andrea, I'm a genius, okay? So just <laughs> you so you are, point blank, the yeah. I, the next idea I have, we're going with it, all right? I got <laughs> no, no pushback. <laughs> 
think the other thing is like um, recognizing, being able to be clear about, about what your genius is. I think that so often we feel like what we bring to the table is superficial. It's about our hair, our earrings, or our dress. And so then people get frustrated when they can't bring those things in. But I think being very clear about your genius and what you have to offer in terms of creativity, strategic thinking, I think some of those more not softer skills, but like skills that are based in your intelligence and not things that could be perceived as being more superficial. So leaning into those as opposed to the things that people would easily just say, like, that's not much. Um, but then the other thing is just finding ways and spaces inside of companies to express that genius. I don't think companies are good at managing and taking care of young Black talent. I don't think companies are good at mentoring us, coaching us, etc. And so what that means is the onus is on us to find people across the organization. It may not be your boss, it may not be your manager, but to find ways and spaces within the worlds that we exist where we can express our genius. Um, the last thing that I'm going to say is your genius is never as genius as it will be the first time. And so recognizing that it's like an iterative process. And so in my book, I always say like, you don't really know what the idea is supposed to be into like the world punches it, kicks it, kisses it, whatever. And so just getting it out into the world so that people can react and then you can take that in and move to the next level of genius, I think is a piece. So often people struggle to start and then they get stuck on phase one. And I think finding your genius is such a process, um, a fun process if you're open to it. But that would be my last piece. I'm stuck on, I get stuck on phase one so much, man. so much. Like I, I, I've talked to Delaney about that all the time. Like I feel like some people just have that switch where they can just go to the second gear and I'm like, it just gets stuck. Like, and then I'll just let it go. And then I'll see it. I'll see that same idea executed yeah. later on. I'm like, I had that idea, but I just yeah. can't get out of that second. I mean, that first gear. Yeah. For me, it's about knowing that the genius is on stage 10. And so I know that on round one, I'm only going to be 25% as I can be. And again, the job is not to just get it out, but to get it out and learn and iterate and iterate. So anyways, anything you can do your, to free yourself, to take the pressure off of stage one, because I think that's where a lot of people get stuck. And then just recognizing like, I have to push through, I have to push through the process, right? It's a factor of life. And so anyways, the more you can do to say, oh, there are 10 steps, I just gotta like, push my way through all of them. That's good. Thank you. Got to get that thing out. You know, as, as you were describing it, I was thinking about um, just my my journey and even like me deciding to get my braids. I think I talked to Deandra for like two weeks about it. I'm like, should I do this? And like, what's going to be the perception? And, you know, is this the right? And it's easier for me, but how is this going to like look to everyone else? And I'm also in the space of like looking for a new job. Is this going to like be a hindrance? And I think there has to be that to your point, there has to be that onus on us that regardless of what I look like, what I'm bringing to the table is not, what I look like doesn't matter. It, it is right. about the strategy. It's about the insights and the value that I can bring that is, is going to show up regardless if I have braids or my shortcut. And I think that that's something that um, hopefully we can do more of to dispel those myths. Um, I was telling Deandre yesterday as we were, you know, prepping for this conversation, I said, 
I remember showing up to the Rams for my first game and I had this idea of how I thought I was supposed to dress. And it Mm. felt so inauthentic to me and I felt so uncomfortable and we're walking Mm. around the stadium and I was like, you know what, the next season, I'm just going to do me. And I'm always going to be professional. I'm always going to manage my relationships well with, with clients and fans. But I'm, and I'm also going to always wear a dope shoe. And I just, I felt, I found my lane and I was worried that I would be judged. And when I didn't do it, people were kind of looking at me like, D, what's up? You're not, you're not bringing it today. What's, what's yeah. going on? So I find that when you, you do have the courage to show up authentically as yourself, people do embrace it and they recognize it. And they almost call you out when you start to become a fraud, you know, on your own. Yeah, I think that's right. The word I want to use is meta perception. So remind me in case I forget because my memory's not good. Um, but if I go back to the beginning of what you're saying, the way that I would say it is that as long as the way you're showing up is not so loud that other people can't hear you, then you shouldn't be stressed about it. Do you know what I mean? Like there's people who walk in a room and it's like too much, right? And all you can do is focus on what, as long as you're not doing that, then again, you just sit anchored in your authentic self and your truth. The other idea that you're talking about like is, um, and I think this is right. I think I learned it back like when I was at Stanford, 2006. Meta perceptions, the perceptions about how other people perceive you and yeah. recognizing that that is a very like minority thing. It's a thing that black people do. It's a thing that women do, but white men ain't worried about that. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like <laughs> white men ain't worried about the perceptions of how other people are going to perceive it. They, they just show up. And so I think, again, the more we can learn to let go of specifically in this moment where um, your voices are being heard more now than they've ever been before. People are challenging and calling white folks and mainstream out for all of this like nonsense. The more we can sit comfortably in not the meta perception, but like, let me show up, be myself. And if necessarily, let me get real perceptions. Let me get real feedback, which is what you got. And the real feedback was, yo, we love this flow. Don't stop doing it. Right. Mm-hmm. But to get out of our own head, because being in our head can keep us stuck on a lot of different ways. Yeah, you're speaking right to me right now. So like Delane and I, you know, we talk about, we just talked about this uh, last week about just, you know, the many masks that we wear um, or that we felt we had to wear, you know, in the corporate space. Like, I feel like, you know, women, especially black women, um, and I can only speak for women, so it might be your Mm -hmm. experience too. We have such duality, right? So like, I can operate in these corporate spaces, but I also like to listen to Meg The Stallion on my way to work. But I've always felt like I had to just wear these masks. And not that I'm going to play Meg The Stallion in the office, but the fact that I am, <laughs> that I'm so, like, I am the culture, right? Like, I don't have to mm-hmm. pretend to be the culture. And there's so many good things about what I can bring, you know, from my experience, because I know that we have shared experiences amongst Black people. Um, like, I just, that just really just hit home for me. So, yeah. Um, yeah. So thank you for putting that into perspective, you know, that, that concept of meta perception. Like I always try to tell people it's head trash. Like most of the time, no, no one's thinking Great about word. you. Great yeah. <laughs> yeah. about you That's at all. Man, I worry so much about our black women because I see, um, one, I understand that there are things that they deal with that I can't see, understand in totality. I'm actually working pretty hard right now to get, the best understanding that I can. Uh, But I say this all the time that I believe that Black women are at the bottom of the totem pole in this caste system that is America. And I know that that is a tough and a difficult place to be. And I'm so worried about our Black queens as we are dealing with COVID, work, Breonna Taylor, et cetera. And so anyways, I think the more you guys can do to self-care, take care of yourself. I will build you up in any moment opportunity that I can. Um, But we have to make sure that we are taking care of our Black women because y'all are dealing with some stuff. It's real. Yes, we are. 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it, is, it, it is exhausting and it changes. Yeah, I can't imagine. The environment, you know, that, um, that you're in. So, uh, you know, you talked a lot about, or a little bit about mm-hmm. thinking ahead and anticipating what's coming next. So we know that you're a thought leader. What are your projections for like the next five years? And what do you think is, oh, what do you think is like that next trend? What's, what's coming? What do we need to be on the lookout for? Take my uh, I, I can talk about the trend that I'm the most excited for, which is the unification of like one black community. Mm. And so as you jump off of like Wakanda and Black Panther that has this feeling as one with Africa in a way that we probably haven't done for quite some time. As you look at George Floyd, where we hit the streets to protest police brutality. And not only is it happening in LA, Chicago, New York, Detroit, but it's happening in France, UK, China on two levels. One, they're saying, we got you. Two, they're saying the same thing is happening here. And so when you look at the math and the numbers, we are so siloed and pulled apart right here. We are 50 million, right? But collectively, globally, like we are Mm -hmm. something amazing. And so the trend that I'm the most excited about is this unification of the Black community across continents and across countries. I'm excited about the businesses we will create, creating our own economics, our own money, right? Forget your dollar. Let's use this black dollar. You know what I mean? Like we might just decide your currency doesn't work for us at all. We're going to trade on a whole different level. I'm not sure what's going to come of it, but it is the thing that I am the most excited about. I'm excited that I can create content here with someone like a burner boy, which I haven't done yet, but I want to. And that same content will resonate in in Africa and Europe, et cetera. So anyways, I just think the scale and the scope of our impact, we're already dope. We were dope 50 million people in the U.S., changing the world you put all of us together as a community and as one united culture with all of our different facets it's the thing that i'm the most excited to see us explore as we figure out what we're going to be and who we're going to be going forward that's awesome i have one more question which is more like a suggestion (laughs) oh my god oh my god do you know what she's gonna say do you already know what she's gonna say i I have a feeling i have a feeling so look you maybe you can get this to Diddy since you're okay. so closely with him. Can you please bring back making the band, bring it out the vault? Like, I feel like I feel like the streets need it. Like, imagine if making the band was Aaron during the time we were on lockdown. Like, how much sure. how much Twitter commentary would have been associated with it? Like, the streets need sure. it. I want to see the band Day Twenty Six, Danity Kane. Like I, I'm telling you, ask them, please. Just put so it. So you the- know, um, you know that I'm in love with you based on this conversation. But I'm gonna tell you, that means you didn't do your research. You know, it's already back. Where? Yeah. So when I was interviewing, I had the same idea, right? It was mm-hmm. like, yo, dude, let's just go get this property. Let's get this franchise. With MTV already got it. Let's do it and bring it back on Revolt. I grew up on it. It's like, um, those are my college years and some of my best years and some of the biggest like franchises that I was watching back then. And he was like, oh yeah, it's already happening on MTV. And so I don't know if you saw, but so what happened is COVID stopped the production, but essentially the Combs cartel, which is Diddy's sons uh-huh. um, and Diddy are doing Making the Band 3 on MTV. And so, okay, so I knew that. I want to okay. see the old episodes. <laughs> oh, you want to see the old stuff? Well, yes. I think, actually, I think we may have that. 
I think we were just waiting to play them until his stuff came to make the relevant side on MTV. Let me go look. So then, I, so then you did your research. So then, let me go look and see if we have it. <laughs> look, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a huge fan. Diddy's a huge fan. We're actually working on something called Making the Brand, which is the story of Revolt, right? Stop. And so we're all on the same page. So let me go see where those Making the Band episodes are and whether they exist in the Viacom system or ours. Um, but I'm with you. Bring it back, man. I'm telling yeah, you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Some of the best TV moments ever. Right. But that was fun. Thank you, guys. Ladies. No problem. Thank you yes. again for, for joining us. We really appreciate you taking the time. Hopefully you get some rest. I know it's yeah. only 12 o'clock over there, which I still don't yeah. understand how you guys are three hours behind. But it's wild. <laughs> it's like being in a whole different country, right? It's so crazy to me. So Yeah. Yeah. You're closer to the end of your day. I just want to say thank you to two lovely, wonderful Black queens. I enjoyed our time together. Thank you for having me. Thank you for the love. Let me know if there's anything that I can ever do to help you collectively or individually um, cheering you on. And find me. If we're not following each other on IG or LinkedIn, find me. Will do. Okay. All right. All right. Bye, ladies. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you. Thanks, Tavia. All right, fam. And another thing, don't forget to subscribe to our podcast available on Apple, Spotify, and wherever you listen to your podcast. Plus be sure to follow us on IG at and another thing, the pod. And for an extra dose of D&D, don't miss our weekly playlist available exclusively on PodPop. Oh, what? <laughs> Where is it available? What's PodPop? PodPop. <laughs>